Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A gem room games guarantee every hex or every dungeon map we're doing this year for that one a month is going to have a mysterious portal that doesn't explain where it goes. My name is Jeremy Gage. And welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. 
Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro. But as always, the show is never about me. It is about who I have brought to you today. And who I have brought to you today is an entire family of designers. Crazy, I know. Uh, They've been on the show before. You know, you love. I would like to welcome the Gem Room Games family, Dan Phipps and Kali Laurie. Hi. Hey, thanks for having us on. Hey, welcome back, you two. Good to be back. Just in case people have not caught up on the backlog yet, would both of you just give a really brief intro of who you are, where they can find both of you individually or together, whatever you prefer as you present yourselves to the internet. Sure. So I'm Dan Phipps. I'm half of Gem Room Games, and I do a lot of the... <laughs> yes, hello. <laughs> and this is Nora, who woke up just in time to participate in this interview. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're a, a LA-based uh, game design team with a kid who is just old enough to want to talk to us every time we talk. So yeah, uh, so this is going to be a very interesting <laughs> format for this interview. I love uh, it. We are primarily you can find our work on Itchio. You might have our, our past big projects were uh, High Magic Low Lives and Duckborg. Yeah, and we recently released the the Weavers Observatory. Our thing that we're trying to go for is weirder, faster, and funnier games, tools, and adventures for you. And Ooh. we actually just yesterday at time of recording launched gemroomgames.com where you can go to find links to everywhere else you can find us or our stuff. Woo! Woo! I keep forgetting that's live. Yeah, it makes, uh, <laughs> it makes these, these little promo parts a lot more efficient. Yeah, instead of being like, yeah, this is my Twitter, and then you can go to my itch. Oh, and I also have a Patreon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just just go to Chevron Games, and you can find yeah. all of it. Yeah. Woo. Well, you know, thank you both for being back on the show. Usually at this stage, I would add an additional icebreaker of, you know, how did you both get started in the RPG scene? But we already have an episode about that. So listeners, if you're hearing that, go check out that other episode because I'm not going to make them burn 20 minutes on talking about that since they already did it. But what I do want to get different from that is what are some cool games either of you have played lately or engaged with lately? You know, out of a little... Off genre, but we spent our New Year's Eve playing a uh, Back to the Future cooperative board game. Yeah. Uh, which one is it? I'm looking across the room and it's... Dice Through Time. Dice Through Time, which was a <laughs> really good time. It was one of those surprisingly high quality tie-in board games. Like we haven't cracked it open, but apparently the the Fast and Furious board game is is shockingly excellent. Yeah, and we just picked up Nate Tremay's Haunted Almanac, which I'm starting oh, to yeah. dig through, and I'm already like, okay, I can, you know, I can use this, I can use that. So I'm really looking for. I haven't. I, I, I've been having my, one of, one of my goals for this year is to play more actual tabletop RPGs instead of just spending all of our time writing them. So I'm, I'm looking for like, okay, you know, what can I, what can I use and like play with to, to get, get the band back together? (laughs) I love that phrase. Yeah. It's, you got to recharge the inspiration station. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. But there is, I think what's really interesting is there's always this battle between consumption and creation where you can sort of like infinitely consume and never create. And that can be its own sort of double-edged sword. But if you're always creating and never consuming, your ideas never change. So you got to strike that balance between the two. And I, I love that you're you're looking to do that so hey humble guy playtest coming to you soon sometimes you know somewhere between pandemic and kids scheduling an actual regular uh Mm -hmm. game night can be pretty tricky but even just a lot of the the engagement that we've been doing is just a stack of books by the bedside and kind of playing in our heads and Checking out what other people are doing, even if we're not getting to check it out live. 
Yeah. <laughs> Doing it live. Well, amazing. I'm glad you, I'm glad. You, is there any like particular doodly do in the, in the back, back in time game that you really liked? Like any particular feature or bug? So some of the stuff I thought was really interesting was it, so the, the map is laid out and, and you roll, you get four dice and you roll them and they, that tells you what you can do. But there is some interesting tech in like, yes, you haven't played, you don't know in, in sort of like, okay, well, you know, this, this die means this die means you can go, you can drive to a different location. And this result means you can go to a different timeline. And so if it was just you, I feel like it would get really frustrating. But because there's multiple players in a cooperative way, you end up and you have to alternate turns. You can't like, you know, you have to kind of structure out your it ends up forming this great bit of like cooperative puzzle solving of, okay, well, I can I can move over and like drop this in the past and then you can come over and pick it up in the future and like, and then use it to punch Biff. But it's, Uh, it's interesting too, because it's cooperative, but you're not really playing together in the way that you do some cooperative games. It's mm -hmm. a lot more parallel play because your, your characters, uh, so to speak, everybody is playing Marty and the doc as a team Mm. just from a different time. And you never run into each other. So there's no really like, oh, we're going to tag team and get this one thing done in the same spot. You can kind of help each other from across the board, but but it's still very, I'm going to do my stuff on my turn, which has been informed by what you're doing, but is not actually actively engaged with it because there's a hundred years between us. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, that's great. That sounds great. I really like that. It's, you know, I like, it's the, it's sort of like the, I like the concept of like locking off options depending on the game state of something. So like someone in the past has only so many options versus someone in the future who only has so many options as the example. And it's definitely like that since there's one of the big mechanics is that if you are in the past, so you, you roll dice every turn and kind of see, okay, what tools are available to me on this turn? Mm -hmm. And maybe you don't want to use them all, in which case you have the option to bury them like a time capsule and somebody in the future can pick those up. But that means, you know, if you're in like 1885 burying things, well, everybody in the future can get it. But if somebody in 2015 buries something, well, somebody else in 2015 can get that. But the person in 1885 isn't really going to benefit from something mm. that was mm-hmm. buried in the future. So it's it's very one directional help in that way. It does a really good job of creating a situation where you have individually you do not have the resources you need to solve the problems you need to solve. So mm-hmm. like it, it, it on paper, it feels like it would be very, you know, yes, it feels like it'd be very multiplayer solitaire, but because you just can't, unless you're really, really lucky, you usually can't get what you need. The cooperative kind of needs to, to amp up the higher the stakes get, which is, which felt like a fun sort of organic turn to it. I love that. That sounds great. Now I want to play. It reminds me um, of, I've played a couple expansions of time stories. I don't know if you're familiar with that game, but essentially the idea is you have set scenario where you're going back in time, you're solving a mystery. People can explore different portions of a room at the same time and you have a limited amount of time tokens. So you have to do it efficiently and you have to choose like which character is going to explore which space and, it, and et cetera, et cetera. So great. I love it. Well, let's, let's talk about what we're ripping here to talk about. Right. All right. We got nine lives. 
of Valhalla. What's going on? Tell me about it. What, <laughs> give us the juice. So, Nine Lives to Valhalla is our first physical printed game that we're doing for Zine Month 2022. And it's um, ultra-violent, but gleefully so, inspired <laughs> by death metal and Vikings and... Uh, our most brutal hunter in the world, the domestic house cat. <laughs> Sounds like it's a real, and you can keep this gem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jeremy. Thanks, thanks Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds um, awesome. Yeah. We're it's, it's set in uh, a world where, you know, the age of man is over. It's the age of beasts. There's no more humans, and death has chosen your band of of death metal Viking cats to die gloriously nine times, so you can earn a place in Valhalla. When you know everybody else only has to die once, so it's it's a uh, nine... it's it's a lot harder when you have to earn it nine times. But it has some of the some of the tech I'm proudest of, which is every time you roll dice something dies maybe it's you maybe it's uh maybe it's whatever is trying to kill you maybe it's both of you maybe it's the gm but if if you only bother with that stuff if if lives are on the line which i feel like is you know really as as fast a game as we could hope to make and we do have a a primary antagonist which would be you know naturally man's best friend the cult of the leash dogs who would really like to bring their best friend back. And these cats are just not going to let them. Oh my God. That's amazing. Now I'm just imagining like dogs with Drogar humans and necromantic labradoodles. Amazing. Necromancer labradoodles is exactly the tone. That's the the right vibe. So yeah. So the, the gameplay loop is that players are, cats and they need to die is that like do they seek it and it doesn't always like happen or like it comes when it comes how does that sort of how's that sort of play out well so they are led personally by death so Mm -hmm. death is never far and Mm -hmm. it is death's role as the gm to provide the cats with any number of potentially glory-rich situations uh, in which they can test their mettle and find out whether or not they are earning their way this time. But a complication is that every time you die, you make it up to Valhalla before they send you home, but they send you home with a blessing that makes you stronger, tougher, faster, etc., which makes it that much harder on the next run to get your real glorious death. Huh. It's kind of like a, like a roguelite element in it. Yeah. Yeah, actually I, I played it an earlier version of it at a LA based convention called Strategicon. And everyone who, it was like a games on demand thing. And all the people who showed up to play were like the story game set and, and all the OSR kids went off to play, I don't know, Troika or something. So mm-hmm. we had a really, really good time. And afterwards they were like, oh, that was like leveling up a D&D character from like 1 to 20 in a single session. like <laughs> In like yeah. 90 minutes flat. Like you, you're leveling up constantly because you just are one bad role from uh you know glorious death i also love that you made like progression diegetic in that way too which is really really cool you know often like gameable tabletop progression always feels so numbery to me like it's outside of the scope of the setting or the world it's like how what does it's not just getting stronger like how am I leveling up? Do, I don't have to go like to a guild or something. D and D five E doesn't require me to go find a mentor to level up. So, no, how does sort it of, happen? Hey, do something awesome that you were gonna do anyway, and you get 
rewarded for it by story and skill progression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's good. That sounds awesome. But yeah, that, it's interesting that you bring that up because we've been, we've been workshopping how we want leveling up. So I, I think a lot about diegetic leveling up. And one of the things I don't like about some RPGs it, and this is a pet peeve, but like, it kind of bugs me when you spend all day killing goblins and then it's like, okay, now I can speak French. And it's like, well, wait, those are completely unrelated ideas. And one of the things that we've been workshopping for a different project for the purposes of recording, I'm going to refer to as what we're calling the screw around and find out system. Mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. you get experience points for failing and you get experience points for finding someone to and giving them money to teach you how to do the thing. And that's it's the two ways that you really learn in real life. You either mm-hmm. try and try and screw up, but you sure learn something from screwing up or mm-hmm. you go take a class and they're both yeah. valid ways to learn and very different ways to learn. Mm-hmm. And can have different like pros and cons to them in of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So trying uh, to trying to figure out a way to make that interesting and not, I mean, we we did make a character sheet with thirty three individual experience tracks. Uh, which, we've we've conceptualized a character sheet with thirty three individual <laughs> uh, skill tracks, but it's it's unclear if that's a feature or a bug <laughs> at this point. So we're, we're still. We're still percolating on that. <laughs> the giant talent tree. Yeah. Just, just make it like eight, A4 with teeny tiny lines. Yeah. Christ. I, I, you know, I'd experience it. I'd give it a go. So where, why? Why the game? Why Nine Lives of Valhalla? Yeah. Why Nine Lives of Valhalla? How did it happen? Where was the juice? Where was the juice for that? So, so we... For this, we take you back to, what, 2017? Earlier. Earlier, 2016, I think. And I was doing a project for my visual arts side of things. One of those, you do a, a thing every day for a whole month. And I was doing a, a set number of stitches in some pieces every single day and was talking about how that affected my productivity and creativity and so on. And we got to, this was before Gem Room Games was Gem Room Games. Dan and I got to talking about how something like that might work for him. And he started doing a game a month with some set limitations of, okay, it's just going to be a small zine and... It's going to have to be made within the confines of one month. And by the time that month is over, the game is done and playable. And I'm not coming back to it for at least some time. And Nine Lives to Valhalla is actually the very first of those teeny tiny zine games. And we didn't come back to it for quite some time. But now here we are. Yeah, the the I had taken like before uh, uh, a ways back I'd taken a sketch writing class that I was okay at I I wasn't you know it didn't click but one of the things <laughs> I got out of it was this brainstorming technique of just writing columns of stuff just writing lists of like things you think are interesting and mm-hmm. and matching them up and so I needed ideas within the confines of a month very quickly. And so I was just writing stuff down and Viking and cat came up and it was like, great, let's go. And I'd written like two thirds of the game before I went on. This was back when, when you went on Facebook and typed things there, which we don't do anymore. <laughs> and, and I, I was sort of like, Hey, I need some death metal. Like this needs death metal. Doesn't, and I don't really, I'm not overly familiar with the genre. Does anybody have any recommendations for like Viking death metal? And a friend of ours, uh, Robbie Bear, sent me a link to Amon Amarth's Twilight of the Thunder God, 
which I listened to on repeat for a bit and then deleted the whole thing and started over because it was like, this is not. And it is it started and, and you can still see a little bit of it, but it, it started as a, a Ryutama hack, actually. You know, the, the sort of like, OK, you have four stats and they're represented by dice and you you roll two of them like that. DNA is still in there. But like having a, a tone playlist really changed the shape of like how it mechanically works and how it was how everything was described because it was sort of like, oh, this is too slow. And like, there's not nearly enough murder yet. So that was, that was scrapped. And then we laid it out in, we downloaded some public domain drawings of cat skulls and laid it out in PowerPoint and, and printed it out. And in retrospect, the typeface is way too small (laughs) on that first run. You can barely read it. But we bought a long arm stapler and... Yeah, made like did the thing. fifteen and gave out gave him out at parties. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but aw. the thing is, that one above all the others, that one always felt like it would be worth revisiting. And now we do this as a business, so our skills have developed quite a bit beyond where we were at that point, and it just really seemed like it deserved the additional love that we could give it now. I love it. I think it's amazing. I, uh, that's a really cool story. And it's one of those, I think it's, it's stroking that ode of don't, don't throw away any ideas. Cause you never know when you can like use them again or come back to them, but if totally. you get rid of them, you may never know what the, and also future-proof yourself. Often I, not often, I guess in my private life often, but not on the show. But I always say like, hey, when you write down an idea, do a full sentence. Protect future Jeremy from reading, clocks are good. I don't yeah. know what that means. <laughs> you, you get into your journal and you're like, purple six quarter. Huh. Yeah. Sure, that yeah. was brilliant at whenever I wrote yeah. it, but... Just popping off in the past. <laughs> Thanks, me. And it's it's kind of interesting for us because we're we've been making games sort of semi professionally for a very long time, but only digital only, like only mm-hmm. slinging PDFs. And so now there's sort of this like, well, what do we what do we do with all this stuff? Like, what do we do with Duckburg? Like, we're still trying to figure out what we do with Duckburg, you know, and like. These these games that we're really proud of that, you know, probably will reach a bigger audience with a little bit of applying, you know, like like High Magic Low Lives was entirely laid out in um, Google Docs, which mm-hmm. uh, I've seen games laid out in Google Docs and it's like, ooh, you'd never know. You can tell. Like, let's not. <laughs> no, it's it's page breaks and, and like centered inline art. And all the way, and it it looks fine, and it's readable, and it's it's functional. But like, it could be it could be so much more, and also it could be a, a very real book. So like, this is sort of a an experiment in kind of like not even a second edition, but like a like a like a remaster of, of- the point in our history where I pivoted to. More full-time games work and our layout and art and things really, really change at that point. And I'm sure all your processes as well, like your internal work together processes. Sorry, somebody's playing with a cardboard box and I missed that whole sentence. (laughs) No, you're good. I was just saying that also your probably internal processes on how you both work together has also changed a ton since then as well, right? Oh yeah. yeah. Weaver's Observatory was was a big shift in that because that was, you know, that was Collie's concept from Go. Like I I wrote a lot of words for it, but like, you I know, mean, with thanks to Chris Bassett's uh random adventure uh, jam adventure prompt. jam prompts. But I we we had talked about wanting to shoot off just a a quick little end of the year project for random adventure jam and then one night very casually i went to check it out and a title popped up that i was like oh oh i can do something with this and Hmm. and then like 64 pages and eight handmade fiber art projects later you know 
our super quick, easy peasy end of year project (laughs) finally done. It's, it's so interesting that you did that too. The other day I was watching, I've been watching a lot of Magic the Gathering, like plain setting videos or essays or whatever you want to call them. And I learned, first of all, for a very long time, I thought most of the card art was like digital like for forever, like since Meriden came out for anyone who like gives a shit about magic. Uh, that would have been back in like 2006, 2007 or something like that. And it's only now that I'm realizing that they commission very cool, various visual artists to construct very amazing pieces of art in uh, specifically in Kaldheim they do a lot of wood carvings for their saga cards. They're like cards that tell a story over a set of mechanics. And it's just, it's just what, what you did for, for the Weaver's Observatory is sick. Absolutely sick. <laughs> it's absolutely sick. Well, thank you. It was a, a yeah. lot of work, but yeah. also a lot of fun. Oh. Well, you know, just just the tail end of, of this particular subject matter. Where again can people get into learning more about Nine Lives to Valhalla? So the easiest link is gemroomgames.com. And from there, we've got connections to our pre-launch page. Although I suppose by the time you hear this to our active campaign where you can go and get the thing. Or and also, alternatively where you can pre-order after the campaign is closed, or, depending on when this is airing. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also to our press kit and to a sneak peek that delivers on the tone and sort of the tone and style of the mechanics layout and art that you can expect from the book. It's what, 14 pages? 13? Yeah, 14 pages of uh, preview. So yeah, so go to jumproomgames.com and you can find the the preview, the press kit, and the links to either a live campaign or pre-orders after we've funded enough that we know we can do this. Love it. Death metal, cats, get them to Valhalla. Die, die nine times gloriously. Witness me, dude. Amazing. Well, I know that as a small transition here... We had some additional things to talk about that you presented to me, and that's sort of in the realm of adventure and setting writing. So what you what did you want to get into today, Gem Family? So, I'd like to hear from um, Laura specifically. Yeah, I mean, so we have been working... We, we've written two adventures in, in 2021, and both times were like, quick adventure in and out. You know, it'll be a couple of pages and we'll knock it out. And then it comes somewhere in the 60s with full art and it's a giant mess. And we got to <laughs> knock that off. So one it's, of the- it's one thing to do that intentionally, but quite another to stumble your way into 60 pages when it was supposed to be four. Well, and you look at something like Ultraviolet Grasslands, right? Or like these these setting books, which are big, you know, and impressive and do a lot of interesting stuff. But each individual location, it's really short. It's really kind of, I, I say poetic uh, in, a ter- in terms of, I mean, you know, the, the writing is excellent and evocative, but also poetic in terms of like really considered economy of, of word count. You know, how do you get ideas across both enough to like evoke the vibe and also you can play it and you only have a page or two to do it because otherwise this thing is going to be, you know, you're going to write a whole book about this one place when the goal is like this big sprawling thing. So one of the things that we're trying to learn in 2022 and we've been doing a lot of research about is like both visually and in prose like, how do you write a hex, you know, or a dungeon in a way where you you can have, you know, these, these like, what is it? Like, Tomb of the Serpent Kings is a dungeon that is, you know, like, has a lot about every individual room. One of the skills we're trying to learn is, okay, how do we do this, like, with a one-page front and back limit? Mm-hmm. To, like, mm-hmm. keep this to scale. And so we've been, we've been 
reading up on a lot of that. There's a lot of really great blogs out there. Prismatic Wasteland is great. MV and and Ty's blogs are, are both really good. Great post. I have to look up the the link, but about like <laughs> grounding the anti-canon and and finding ways to like have that sort of uncertainty and that room for a GM to like do their own thing while also having some like consistent things that they can fall back on what we call the hard frame yeah you know how do you frame stuff so that it's it it hangs together and the the what we've been doing is sort of a practice is is yeah writing you know one a it's a four right Uh, yeah one a four page front and back like that's the entire budget we get to describe a dungeon and its surrounding environs like, how can we make this look nice? How can we make this evocative and compelling? And how can we not spill over, you know, like, what what do you cut here, you know? It's a little bit going back to that one-a-month project that started Nine Lives to Valhalla, because we're, we're back on that doing one hex-plus setting every single month, which mm-hmm. is also great in terms of developing these skills for creativity and kind of working those tools of coming up with new ideas and figuring out new ways to visualize them and doing so on a timeline with a deadline because mm-hmm. we're the deadline comes about because every month we're giving the the hex plus setting that we worked on the month prior we're giving them away to subscribers to our mailing list mm-hmm. for free so sign up for our mailing list and you can get uh, a whole year well depending on when you sign up the sooner you sign up the more free hexes plus settings you yep. get but that's that's kind of a fun way for us to make sure that we're sticking to our own deadline is giving ourselves the accountability of, no, really, we are sharing these with people. Yeah, the first of all, one of the biggest things that fascinates me when it comes to setting adventure, dungeon design, or whatever have you, is the, like, over-encompassing concept of the micro-setting, like, taking things to a local level instead of, like, trying to make huge swaths of continents for people to play on. And that can, like, build over time, right? Um like Blades in the Dark, Duskfall is a perfect example of like a micro setting. It's just a city, although it feels so large because it's so dense. It could even probably be smaller in some cases. Well, I mean, um, when you play that, you're you can spend entire campaigns in like a three square block radius. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and. There's a, now I remember that I forgot to send you something, Dan, but there are these two um, products that Tony Facinda shared with me quite a couple months back. One is Trilemma Adventures, and then the other is, I can't remember who the designer is, but it's like one shot or one page dungeons or something like that. And they're, they're both structured really cool, really cool. Like, and me and Tony had an idea the other day, not the other day, quite a couple months ago. (laughs) That's a different day amorphous yeah about making like getting gm screens to come back and doing it in such a way that like oh the front adventure on that yeah yeah like a whole adventure on a gm screen so the back has all of like the gm information they need this is more like an osre sort of take but uh, all like the private information for the Mm -hmm. gm is on the gm side but you have a constant visual of like the map of the dungeon and like some evocative details and stuff like that for the players put the map that the players can see on one side of it and the map with all the secrets on the other side for the gm yeah like the players get the like the drunk guy that sold them a a treasure map you know and like a rough sketch of the dungeon so it's like just enough where they're not like having to to like map every individual square, but like not telling them what they're in for necessarily. Ooh, that's good stuff. Ooh, let's yeah, make it. And yeah, I listen, I think it's a I think it's a very cool idea. And you can mark it up, right? Like yeah, yeah, if you yeah. if we went with that example where it's like this guy didn't explore half of this 
this place. Like, you can start writing on the front of the player-facing one. They can make notes that way, or they can copy their own version onto a piece of paper or something like that, but have, like, a starting seed of that uh, artistic ability there in case someone doesn't feel artistically adept or anything of that nature. So, yeah, GM Screen Adventures (laughs) is a thought. So... I I think I'm just gonna write a, that down in a full sentence. I yeah. <laughs> I love everything about that, and I think I'm really glad you brought up Blades in the Dark because I realized halfway through when I was talking about adventuresome stuff, I never stopped to open with why. And and one of the things I think is that like when you look at Blades in the Dark pre-prepared materials, they tend to be very loose. They tend to be very like. Oh, well, here's like a couple premises and and the game is designed for you to make things up on the fly. And that's part of the game and part of the culture of the game. And I get it. And that's not bad. But I do think there's this idea that adventures are only for your OSR style games, you know, like Passion de la Passiones like doesn't get adventures, but, you know, Karn or Knave or whatever they do. And I, I really think, and I don't know what shape this takes, but I really think that there, even games that weren't written with adventures in mind can still benefit from like that sort of in-depth, you know, the, the type of writing you do for an adventure that is in what we think of when we think of a D&D adventure. I think other games benefit from that too, even if it's just like, Okay, and here's a grand plaza for you to have your like confrontation or if it's the good society, like this is what the house looks like. Like here's Mm -hmm. floor plans and like because um, floor plans and who you might run into and what you might find there. Like one of the things that I really want. And I, except no one else do this because we want to write it first. So <laughs> listen to this and be like, wow, I sure hope Gem Room Games does it. I would never, we don't get a chance to work on it for some months. That clever Gem Room Games. Like TMTM. <laughs> but, but one of the things I wish Blaze in the Dark materials had were just guard rotations and like patrol routes and stuff. Like mm-hmm. that sort of Metal Gear Solid 5, like yeah. <laughs> this is a place, like the, the, the governor's mansion is a place with this routine that you are interrupting. And so Mm -hmm. like, and this is what happens when like people start to realize like, Hey, there might be someone in this house that isn't supposed to be here. How, how does that change? And so on like Blades in the dark runs good without that. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't capital N need it, but like none of this is necessary. It's play. Like we should do it for its own, you know, like, so I, I, we're doing it from a very like OSR style thing. Like when you go to the, 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 the hollow Lake, it's all very percentages and encounter tables and so on. It's, it's played pretty straight. But one of the things I really want to start getting into once we've got, once we're good at that, cause we're, we're growing that skill. Like the hollow Lake rules school. Like, don't get me wrong. You know, we're, we we're we're geniuses who knocked it out of the park the first time, but <laughs> Like, I, I want us to get a couple more rounds and sort of figuring out, like, our house style or whatever in it. And I really want to write an adventure for a game that w- is, is like, hostile to the idea. Because I think there's there's yeah, something Passion there. Passion could have great adventures. I would write a Passion adventure. I need to understand that game better and, like, reread it. But I, I think the... I think this is another area where the sort of like OSR story game divide is made up and like, and I think writing adventures and settings for your games is like a nice way to invest in something that you made or something that your friend made. And uh, you know, like, like feeding a really good foundational concept in a way where you can kind of revisit it and, and build it out instead of moving on to the next one. So that's, I think one of our big goals is, like, we like making games. We're not going to stop making games, but also, like, knowing how we want to write settings and adventures so that we can feed High Magic Low Lives or feed Nine Lives of Valhalla with, like, well, here's, you know, here's another horrible, blighted, post-apocalyptic hellscape to murder dogs in. Or a bank. <laughs> <laughs> or a bank. 
I do want to do an adventure for Nine Lives of Valhalla that takes place entirely in the Burbank Ikea. Yeah. <laughs> that would be like a mega dungeon to a cat. Yeah, yeah. Huge. I can see it, dude. That's awesome, and especially at cat size. Yeah, there's there's a ton of stuff there. First of all, if you're listening, Brandon Lee on Gambetta, scripts. You could write adventures called scripts, and then you can retcon the scripts as you play. You can have that for free. But yeah, scenario, like that last bit that you had about feeding a game, right? I think that partly contributes to Dungeons and Dragons success in Absolutely. that the the system is say what you want about the personal feelings of the game for anyone who may be listening. You know, you've heard uh, my opinions a thousand times and more about Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition, but the system is liftable. And I mean that in the same way that forged in the dark was liftable. Like it, it can serve a lot of different settings. If you just put a small amount of like word recontextualization juice into it, doesn't you're not, you don't have to change like the D 20. You don't have to change the multiple D six roles or anything like that that so the mechanics are very liftable so allows people to make subclasses and allows people to make adventures and very osr style stuff and um, every one of those is a new entry point into right enjoying that that game and that world yeah yep yeah and you know it's also why forge in the dark is so strong it's also why powered by the apocalypse is so strong because the specifically for those sets of examples the mechanics are so liftable that you can sort of make whatever you want on top of them right we got monster of the week now we've got uh mother effing i don't know what else (laughs) i can't think of any other pbta games monster hearts jesus christ but and it's also why Ironsworn is getting larger and larger now that they've come out with Starforged and stuff and the Ironsworn Delve. And that also has in parts so like, here are the creator's kits that teach you how to make stuff for the game. But it's exactly that. All of that is the summate into feeding, like, if you really like, like, I'm going to make Umbral, I'm going to make Umbral Dive. And that's the only game I'm going to make. I'm not going to be a designer who makes like a ton of different examinations of systems and games. I'm going to make Umbral Dive, and then I'm going to make second edition, and then I'm going to make second third edition, edition, four adventures, <laughs> yeah. three yep. settings, yeah. no, I'm, re-release, yes. top hits. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, yep. that's great. That like one game club, like absolutely. Yeah. We, we did kind of mess that up because we do keep also making games, but <laughs> but I, yeah. just until you find the one game for one game. Well, there's, there's two of us, so we get a bigger <laughs> one game budget. We can have two, but and Nora counts. But yeah, I mean, and I think also like, you know, as creators, right, like setting aside the sort of mercenary, like, it's nice to not have to build a community from scratch. Mm -hmm. It's nice being able to tap into the Blades in the Dark established community or the Morkborg established community. But also I think there's sort of like, there is value in playing with someone else's tools. There is value in like, like, I... You know, there's there's never time enough for any of this, but like I really have a Lumen game I want to make. You know, like I really well, I I need to figure out if it's Lumen or it's Light or you know, Spencer Campbell's got like twelve PPAs <laughs> at this point. But like I really wanna to sit down and make one of those. I really wanna make a a Blades in the Dark, like here is a compound to rob, like really granular thing. Uh, like we made a Morkborg. I'd make another Morkborg. That was super fun to write. I'd spend a little, you know, a little more time on the layout in our time budget. Yeah, we would have used Bleed. But, and like, I think, you know, we also want to make our own stuff and sort of balancing that out. I think there's sort of, I don't know. I, I think it, the, the two things I want to be doing is, is sort of like making our own thing with an eye towards like, making it something that other people can play with making, you know, mm-hmm. like be making it extremely adventure friendly or, or what have you. And, and like really not, you know, going beyond just the, the game jam to like get other voices working on our stuff. And also like to be one of those voices working on other people's stuff. Cause mm-hmm. there's so mm-hmm. much good out there. Like it's, it, you know, like OSR is, is a, is a genre of that, but also like, yeah, man, make a Lumen hack. It's not, you know, make a 2400 hack. Like, 
and and you know take advantage of the fact that like there a those communities are out there and b they're really good games um coming back to the 12 months of hexes and settings something mm-hmm. that we're working on also is not playing with a specific system but working to make these things system neutral so if you want to pop one of these places into your blades game cool if you want to put it in your light game cool if you want to play this with fifth edition like all right you do you the one of the goals for us is being able to make something that can go system to system like that and be something that a lot of people can enjoy in a number of ways. There's, I think, also for adventure scenario writing, especially when you look at a version that is of a system agnostic sort of variety, one thing that I think about is the genre that maybe a system... Like, I don't think it's going to be easy to hit every system with a single sort of genre. So what I mean by that is, like, doing a, I don't know... Brennan Lee Mulligan did it, but I still don't think it quite works. But playing like D and D Fifth Edition with a mansion murder mystery, like that may not necessarily it's vibe. Be trickier for sure. Yeah, unless everyone's a rogue. Your all your players are rogues. They have to be. But it's. I think there's like genre. It, it's really it's it's a really interesting concept to like do it from a genre perspective. Be like, okay, this is like an epic fantasy heroic dungeon crawl, but not a dungeon. It's a forest or it's climbing a mountain or whatever it looks like. Any game that has that genre link, right? Uh, Or that can facilitate that genre link doesn't take a lot of monkeying around. Or you could write one that's like mystery and that fits like a gumshoe game or like can use like looser PBTA stuff or something like that or Blades in the Dark, right? So... I think something I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about like system agnostic adventures, I think genre potentially, and you don't have to agree, but I think that genre technically matters in the approach for those types of products as well. Yeah. And probably I think more than system does. Cause yeah. you can describe something with, you know, all just all through what's, What's adjectives, verbs? I always forget which one I'm talking about. Descriptor words. You can use all adjectives. You can use percentiles. There are ways to give somebody enough information about what you're talking about that they can kind of translate it through the mechanic they're working with. Mm-hmm. But you're, you are right. If you're handing somebody a contemporary murder mystery, that's probably going to have a harder time translating to a game that is a completely different genre. It's not impossible. No. But yeah. that's a that's a much uh harder hurdle to get past than getting past like, oh well, this game only uses this type of dice and that game only uses cards. Mm-hmm. You can get past yeah, that whatever. part. We're no, yeah. Nobody's remembering the rules properly anyways, so. <laughs> it's all oral tradition. So yeah, what, yeah. Are we, what are we worrying about? How do you? You talked about, oh, I'm going to, you've already said it, the hollow, hollow oh, lake. The Is hollow that, lake, yeah. Yes. That's a pat on the back for Jeremy. Is hollow lake your favorite adventure to date, or do you have like a different scenario that you've kind of fallen in love with? What's been your sort of favorite creation on a macro level and then also, what is your favorite minor detail in any of those? I have mine. I, I'm i going first. I okay. think uh, <laughs> adventure-wise, I feel like I should say the Weaver's Observatory, but in my head, that's more, that's so much that in terms of something a bit more approachable, it's Augies, because that one has just like we wrote it for high magic low lives but it's got so much fun packed into it and so many things that that can be can do exactly what we've just been talking about of figuring out how the descriptor of this one room or other can be translated through different systems and 
I I actually was going to bring up a little while ago something that we did with that one when Dan was talking about guard shifts, which is the way that the rooms on the airship of Augie's, the airships on fire are described. It, it takes into consideration whether or not your character would be out of place there. If you're walking into the engine room in civilian clothes, that's going to have a very different reaction than if you're hmm. walking onto the guest's deck. So, Augie's was going to be my answer. <laughs> um, and the, the macro detail... Thank you, Nora. The, the macro detail I really like and the micro detail I really like. The macro detail is the way the game just outright says the way the fire works. The first decision is how long do you want to be playing this? Because yeah. that's how long it takes for the airship to burn down. Like, let's not we're not trying to simulate actual fire mechanics. We're just trying to use this to pace your game like like it, it's very as much as I like love to noodle on diegetic world building and leveling up mechanics and da 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 like we're we're we've only life is short we're not going to yeah. make a game where the fire might take four hours like just however long it takes you you, mm-hmm. you know and the small detail i really like is when you're on when you're in the crew quarters there's a door with a scratching sign behind it and if you're a sound behind it and oh. if you <laughs> Open it, an alligator in a wizard's hat falls oh, falls out and starts scurrying away. And I, I, there's I bring that up also. So the the <laughs> and there's like a different character where you can like learn de- you know depending on you either it's a complete non sequitur or if you went to the crow's nest first you like get some context as to what in the hell happened there, but. Yeah, there's just a uh, alligator in a wizard's hat is a an incredibly compelling visual image to me, and I will probably keep putting that in games. <laughs> that is uh, something forever. I was really happy with in Aji's. Also, mm-hmm. is that we do have the sort of the the laid out of what you can expect from a certain area and where it is and that type of thing, but also we've got rumors, and just through the gossip that you may or may not encounter in different ships, you can put together so much more story of what's going on. There's a love triangle happening that is never even like that explicitly talked about, but it's all there. You just have to pay attention to some of that gossip and it might not even come up, but, but I love having that there. In the in the spirit of weird details, a Gemrum Games guarantee every hex or every dungeon map we're doing this year for that one a month is going to have a mysterious portal that doesn't explain where it goes, and and that's a that's a through line for this whole year. M- more <laughs> mysterious portals that that it becomes the GM's problem. We we twenty twenty two an idea of uh, what these portals go to, but are probably going to sit on that for a little while. Aw. No sneak peek? It's okay. I don't need it. It's, it'll be <laughs> fun to find out at the end of the year. Well, don't forget, listeners, you can go to gemroomgames.com and, and sign up for the newsletter and get these very, very cool single hex area adventures. You sure can. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of the show here. Dan, Kali, I would thank you again for being on here. Would you ju- and Nora, thank you for being, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend. Would you please give a brief outro once again of who you are, where people can reach you and find your stuff, all these links and things that they are going to say in two seconds, I will provide in the show notes below. Sure. We're Dan and Kali of Gem Room Games, making weirder, faster, and funnier games, tools, and adventures. And you can find all of our stuff including our social media links at gemroomgames.com. And Batman Life of Valhalla. It's going to be really good. It's going to be really good. The art is rad. (laughs) And also the words. What more do you want? (laughs) The whole thing. The layout's fantastic. (laughs) Wow. Uh, GQ says the layout's fantastic. (laughs) Amazing. Well, 
thank everyone for hanging out with us. I had a blast listening to Dan and Kali again. I hope you did too. And uh, we'll see you next time. Say bye to the people, Dan and Kali. Dan! Bye. Goodbye. Hey there, listeners. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Dan, Kali, and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes for getting in touch with the Gemroom family and other content with similar topics. Support Jeremy and the DYD podcast by reviewing the show or joining the community Discord server. Additionally, you can get ad-free early releases of episodes by donating to the DYD Patreon at patreon.com slash dydpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and remember that design is a marathon, so enjoy the journey and have a great day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.